0: Missouri
1: Post Library. When I'm in office, they will burn.
0: Her name may be unfamiliar to you, but this video is rippling across social media. This week, Valentina Gomez said books containing LGBTQ content on fire. She claims they're grooming kids. The St. Louis City resident is running for secretary of state in Missouri.
2: Tonight, First alert for us, John. A few
3: quotes from Ray Bradbury's 1953 Fahrenheit 451. If you don't want a man unhappy politically, don't give him two sides to a question to worry him. Give him one. Better yet, give him none.
2: Those who don't build must burn. It's as old as history and juvenile delinquents.
3: It didn't come from the government down. There was no dictum, no declaration, no censorship to start with. No, no, none of that. Technology, mass exploitation, and minority pressure carried the trick. Today, thanks to them, you can stay happy all the time. You're allowed to read comics.
2: This is what I will do to grooming books when I become Secretary of State. These books from the Missouri Public Library when I am in office, they will burn.
3: Alan Winston here. Today we're talking about that age-old American tradition, book burning, or more precisely, thought control. We are fortunate to have with us, for this Bar Crawl Radio conversation, recorded at Gephard's Beer Cultural Bar, two librarians, practicing a profession that is the core of any effective democracy. Emily Drabinski, head of the American Library Association, and Lauren Comito of Urban Librarians Unite. And with that bit of an introduction, here we go!
2: Rebecca McCain here. We are so very fortunate that Emily Drabinski and Lauren Camito are with us for an important conversation at this fork in the road for American democracy as we decide on either a gibberish talking dictator or a doddering but effective Democrat for President of the United States. Lauren Camito describes herself as a cape wearing, sword swinging activist librarian in New York City. She is the neighborhood library supervisor of the Leonard branch of the Brooklyn Public Library and board chair of Urban Librarians Unite. In 2020, Lauren was named Library Journal Librarian of the Year. She believes in the ability of the library to build the connections that change people's lives and communities for the better.
3: And I first experienced the passion for books and libraries of Emily Drabinsky at a Cooper Union event last month, mundanely called Book Bans and Censorship in America. For me, Emily and feminist and social critic Roxanne Gay were the full heat of that panel. Emily Drabinski is an associate professor at the Queens College Graduate School of Library and Information Studies. She publishes and presents widely on a variety of topics related to knowledge organization and information literacy, and edits a book series on gender and sexuality. Currently, Emily is the president of the American Library Association.
2: Welcome, both Emily and Lauren, to Bar Crawl Radio to talk about a serious problem in this country, thought and behavior control. But first, why did you become librarians? The, the health insurance.
3: That's Lauren Camito of Urban Librarians Unite.
1: Insurance job, and then I fell in love with it after I went to library school. Come I on, was it a... wasn't
3: because of the health insurance.
1: Well, so there's this thing. Uh, my husband was a guard at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And there's this long-running joke that library school is where guards go to sit down. Um, and he suggested it and I had just gotten rejected from the Graduate Center, where Emily used to work, um, for art history and decided to go to library school instead. And it was a great decision. I've had health insurance ever since and um, really loved the job.
3: What, what, do you, what do you love about it?
1: Um, the people.
3: Not the Uh,
1: customers. My neighbors.
3: Your neighbors, yeah.
1: Yeah, I don't like calling them customers. They're neighbors. This is my community. Um, I'm lucky enough to live and work in the same one Um, in all of my jobs, which is kind of neat. And so I see people on the street all the time Uh, in the grocery store, at the coffee shop, you know, getting on the train.
2: I used to take my students to a library uh, once a year to have a little training in research. And you know, um,
1: Oh, yeah, I still do that. Do you? Good. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, just helped my daughter find a bunch of papers for her social study class yesterday. So nice
2: to have a librarian as a mom when you're doing a research paper. Yeah. She doesn't appreciate it, though.
3: And Emily, how did you get into this business? A
0: little bit like Lauren. I came to New York City from Boise, Idaho, which is where I grew up, and wanted to be a writer. And so I thought I'd go to New York and become a writer. But it turns out, in order to be a writer in New York, you have to already be a writer in New York, or you have to have a little catch
3: twenty-two. Yeah,
0: right. Like I needed to be born into wealth, and that unfortunately was not my <laughs> in That's the cards for I me. Didn't
1: go into art library. Yeah,
0: right. Like I just so I you know I was I found myself. Fact checking at Lucky Magazine, which is a magazine about shopping that doesn't exist anymore. And oh, I was spending a lot of time being very fascinating. Yeah. So, like, you know, it'd be, you know, and, and your listeners can't see me, but I'm not a shopper. I'm here in my sweatpants. And so <laughs> that was like not a great fit for me. And I found myself really being upset and ashamed for getting prices wrong. And I was like, well, if I'm going to be upset and ashamed. It's not going to be about getting the price for a hobo bag. I, I was in a, a subscriber. It was a great magazine. It's <laughs> And the facts were always correct, but except when I made a mistake. And so then I was like, oh, well, I want to do something else. And a friend was like, I think they're hiring at the library. And so I applied for a job and I got it. And similar to you, Lauren, I like it wasn't in my list of fantasies. But as soon as I started working in the library and started library school, I was like, this is it. It's home for me. And it's been a home ever since.
3: I wonder how true that is, that, that librarians don't go to. I mean, when you when you want to go into medicine, it's like I've always wanted to be a doctor. I've always wanted to fly a plane. I always wanted to drive a fire truck.
0: There but are definitely people who've always wanted to be librarians, I think. Yeah. Um, and I you know, I work with them and, and see them around all the time. But, but not it, it you too. Wasn't, wasn't me, but.
3: Our yeah. uh, are, are, are librarians, I mean, I, I, I teach at John Jay, and I'm always urging my students, go go talk to the reference librarian, because they can help you. Are you there kind of like waiting and hoping for a good reference question? i like, love I a like a real question. good one and show off how a much you know. I, A naughty my question. My
0: first uh, academic library job was at Sarah Lawrence College, and that was a small liberal arts college where the students were doing uh, independent interdisciplinary research, and it was really a wonderful place to work in terms of ideas and the real challenge of making a couple of different disciplines talk to each other. That was always really fun to dig into. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I love... Like Lauren, also the thing I love best about it is the people getting to work with people and hear their their ideas. And uh, I write a lot now, but it's still really hard. So being able to help somebody pull their things together and then do do wash your hands, they gotta go do the writing. (laughs) It's very satisfying and
3: and get some credit at the beginning of the book.
2: (laughs) Are public libraries relevant today? I mean, after all, we can pretty much get any book we want from order, ordering it on Amazon, right? So why public libraries?
0: I think that people who have them don't know that large swaths of the American public don't have email addresses. I hear it a lot, right? Like, and and, I, and it's a it's a question that I think you're you're asking because you're curious about how they're relevant, but like there are really forces out there that think that libraries, public libraries aren't important anymore. And you know, you work in one, Lauren, and I use one and I visit a ton of them in my role as ALA president, and they're always packed. There's so many people who could tell you how relevant they are. uh, The people who walk in and use them every day for access to broadband internet, for a clean and quiet and safe space to be inside for a place to use the bathroom, especially relevant here in New York City. There's so many ways that the library is relevant. And in some ways I wish it was less relevant, right? Like in a lot of communities, the library is the only public institution that is still left standing. And it would be nice if we were a little less urgently required by some of the communities we that, serve. That's
3: interesting, because the library is also a place where people go to meet. Yeah. I was at the Bloomingdale uh, Neighborhood History Association, and they you know, they had a meeting there, so there's, there's that too. Yeah.
1: And there's a lot of people talking about this sort of epidemic across the U.S. of loneliness. Like, we have created a society where we isolate ourselves from each other, but at the same time we've also created a society where most of the places where we can go to not be isolated require money. So if you want to be in a space surrounded by other people, you'd better have five dollars for a latte. Or two, yeah. or one every couple hours to keep the the people yeah. happy that you're sitting there. Yeah. Um, and that, but yet, you know, the Surgeon General will talk about the epidemic of loneliness. But at the same time, local governments are cutting library funding for the last third place that you don't have to spend money to be in.
3: So, so where do you
1: go? Right, like where do you sit? You're not allowed it, to sit yeah, in a park it, for
2: too long. People get annoyed. Yeah, it's you can't cold, sit though. in a I coffee mean, right shop. It's, you yeah. can't. It's a great winter refuge. You know, yeah. I mean, we used to bring our kids there all the time. Just you know.
0: Yeah, I think about kids a lot. Like, what if you had to buy every single picture book you read to your kid? <laughs> nobody can do that. You can get anything on Amazon, but nobody can get everything.
3: And you got all the variety there. Okay, okay. Okay. So there, libraries libraries are are more than relevant, but for this conversation, for this conversation, we're asking, "quote What are we talking about when we talk about book banning?" Little Raymond Carver there. Um, so to begin, under normal peaceful circumstances. Just everything is ordinary. Is there a correct process for removing a book from a library? And do you ever do that?
1: Well, librarians remove books from the collection all the time. It's like if you have a garden and it's stu- stuffed so full of plants that none of them have any space to spread their roots. You, can't, you don't have a garden anymore. You just have an empty lot full of weeds, right? So, so how do you decide which books? We go through, well, we know our communities. So we know what people like to read. You know uh, we know what people are asking for what the demographics are what the age groups coming in are and we make decisions based on how often something has gone out how many copies are left in the whole system how much space we have in that section like do we need 10 copies of patty smith's m train in one branch No, but they all ended up at mine, and that made sense, so I kept three because obviously people want to read it at my branch, but I'm not going to keep all ten. I don't have
2: space. Do you then contact other libraries and say, I have a lot of these books. Do you want to take it?
0: Yes. I mean, all of these are problems that, like, this is what librarians are trained to do. So how do you build a collection and maintain a collection and maintain its relevance? That's actually pretty complicated. You know, it's more complicated than... I think people who don't do it for a living think that it is. But to your to your question, is, is there a way for a community member to, to ask for a book to be removed from the collection? There are, uh, you know, public libraries want the public to be engaged with them. We, you know, and, and from my perspective, I think we are right to demand more of our public institutions, and that's fully appropriate. So libraries will have policies and processes for reconsideration of materials that You know, community members can can follow, and that will you know produce a situation where the librarian and and library staff will review a book according to their processes and come to some conclusion. Uh, And so that's a that's a normal thing that I think is standard practice in a library. Libraries
3: have have a uh, procedure to do
0: that. Absolutely, we have processes and procedures for everything. We're like any
1: other kind of including for selection. So you know, when you're when you're looking at. Uh, whether a book would be removed from the collection because somebody complained. You're looking at your your policy for acquiring that book and the standards you use to determine which books to purchase and comparing it to that and the needs of the community and then making a decision.
2: Like maybe a book about for children, a picture book for children about whaling might not
1: be appropriate anymore.
2: Well, I mean,
0: it just completely depends on the community. I just got back from a tour of libraries in Alaska where I can tell you that a book for children about whaling would be highly relevant. But all of these are super local decisions made by librarians working hand-in-hand with their community.
3: But are there certain books that you would agree should not be in libraries, like How to Make a Bomb? Or I had another one here an AI-generated book that makes MAGA arguments for authoritarian control of America. I Do you look at those books and say, no, we don't want to have those?
0: We don't live in a world of absolutes. What I love, we don't live in a world of abstractions. That's what I love about a library. So just as Lauren just described sort of, if I have 10 books about from, by Patti Smith on the shelf, like that's a physical limit. So librarians were always making distinctions between things and decisions about things, but whether or not I have an AI-generated book about MAGA arguments has a lot to do with who am I serving and what are my priorities and what are the collection development tools I'm using. And so, you know, it's a difficult question for me to answer. I don't currently build library collections for any community,
1: so, you know, that's really... Yeah, and I think it would really depend. So the AI-generated book, I might actually reject out of hand because it's AI generated. Absolutely. Not necessarily But is there a policy for that? There is a there is a collection development policy at almost every library about the quality of writing.
3: But not about AI particularly.
1: No, but Given that I've had a lot of students turn in AI-written papers recently, <laughs> yeah. I can tell you that I can almost guarantee that it won't meet the standard I would go for for yeah. quality of writing. And yeah. what I can
0: also guarantee is that there are librarians working probably right now while we're sitting here chatting with you on AI co- and its impact on collection development. Like that's yeah. why we have library organizations and why we have the profession, right? Is to solve
1: a naughty problem like that. Yeah. But what wouldn't be appropriate is me to say, for me to say that because there are maga arguments in it, it automatically does not belong in my community or in my library it very well might if it was written by a human um, and in a quality in a way that had like quality prose but that's not it's not the you know the partisan decision doesn't
2: come into it not at all yeah. right. right so before we get into the extent of book the book banning problem in our country Um, Emily, can you tell us about the American Library Association?
0: I'm happy to. The American Library
2: Association is
0: the world's largest and oldest library association uh, and the second largest trade association in the United States. So we're a big organization filled with library workers and library supporters, and it is the body founded in 1876 that keeps the profession together as a profession. So we do all kinds of things. We uh, We advocate for... Uh, funding and uh, policy at the federal level. We're the only organization that does that. The federal government is a significant granting body for American libraries, and we're the organization that pushes to maintain uh, the funds there. And then we are a member-driven organization, so we have multiple divisions, roundtables, committees that come together to talk about best practices in libraries and figure out this question about AI in libraries everybody's thinking about that and the American Library Association has the tools that convene the best thinkers in this country on that on those questions uh, to come up with some
2: answers yeah. according to the American Library Association what is the extent of banning in this country is it a growing problem
0: it is an unprecedented problem uh, we have as we talked about earlier there have always been tools in place to allow individual community members to challenge materials but what we're seeing now are challenges on multiple titles at a time challenges that are not like by people who don't have children in the school or who live don't live in the communities uh the challenges from starting in 2021 have nearly doubled year over year and what we saw in the first eight months of the of 2023 and we're still waiting on the final data from the year we saw uh the shift a significant shift in challenges which had been primarily in school libraries that uh, those have now shifted into the public libraries as well. And you've got those book challenge issues, and then you've got a variety of uh, pieces of adverse legislation in states across the country that honestly feels a bit like a fire hose at this point trying to keep up with the attacks on the right to read, the right to uh, private reading life, the right to a library. You know, I wake up every morning thinking it's got to be over. Like, it can't keep happening because it's so absurd. The idea that we would as a, com- as a, as a country take a vested interest in limiting the right of people to read what they want and that's, be who they are. That and that's think how they are, want to. Yeah. And I just, every day
2: I wake up and it's not over yet. So, And it's growing. Yeah. Oh, wow. Who are the bad banners, the bad book banners? You know, it's, it's, it's
0: not, it's not individual people, right? It's like a, it's a well-funded Movement, well-organized movement to challenge large numbers of books at a time that are about uh, gender and sexuality and about race in America, and the forces that profit from our divisions around those issues.
2: Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. So, those are the sorts of books that are being banned, mostly. Um, yeah. Can
3: you give some an example? Yeah, some maybe more examples of of what a book of that sort that's being banned or being wanted to be banned.
0: There's a book by Mike Corrado, he's a Filipino-American graphic uh, artist, and he wrote a book called Flamer, which is a beautiful, beautiful story of a kid at Boy Scout camp who experiences bullying and the sort of work he has to do to find the flame inside of himself that keeps him going. And you read the book and it's so sweet. And it's the kind of book I was listening to him talk the other last week at an event and the way he described the book as both for the kids today, but also that he gets a lot of feedback from adult readers who read it and think, wow, had I had this book when I was a kid, maybe I wouldn't have hated myself in the way I do. Maybe I would have been able to come out earlier. Maybe I wouldn't have felt so isolated and alone. And so you read it and you hear these stories and and it just like the book is a good thing. It's a good thing to have in the world. And it's it, on the top 10 list of banned books, I think was number two last year, maybe. And you read it and you think, this is what they're trying to snuff out. Exactly the flame that Carrado's work invites us to see in ourselves and see in each other. And um, yeah, that's
2: an example. Are there any other categories of books that are being banned? I mean, like Fahrenheit, uh, what was it, 451, Ellen. Yeah. How is that?
3: They were banning like political books, yeah.
1: I feel a little bit like you're asking me to make sense out of something that doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. so um, we should be talking with you. There are, what was it, that one county in Florida that decided to ban its dictionaries because of the words in them. <laughs> okay. Um, which becomes is a truth? whole It is. It is a true thing. Oh but right.
0: it is absolutely books about LGBTQ plus existence, black life, the history of racism in America, you know, and we look at it, it, I look at it as tied to attempts to ban parts of the curriculum, right, bans on critical race theory. Yeah, it's
1: absolutely connected, and and, and then connected. the people are connected. Absolutely. Because you can watch the yeah. connections
0: between groups grow, and it's yeah. been
1: like, well, that's fascinating.
0: And, you know, everywhere you have a ban, an attempted ban on books about trans and gender expansive experience, you also have attempts to implement legislation that would ban gender-affirming healthcare, right? Like, they
1: go together. Because it's not about the books. It's not about the books. It's about uh, sort of dehumanizing people. So if you can take, like, books aren't... Like, this is going to sound really weird for a librarian to say, books aren't inherently valuable as an object. Books, the, the inherently valuable part of a book is the story and the human experience inside it. You could put that story and ex- human experience in a podcast. You could put it in a YouTube video. You could put it in a film, you could put it anywhere. That human experience is the important part. And by removing those books from the library openly and ostentatiously, these people are saying that that human experience doesn't deserve to exist. And once you've said that out loud in a school board meeting, it's really easy to go after gender affirming care. It's really easy to make racist, you know, systemically racist decisions about education or policing—it's really easy once you've decided that these people aren't worth reading about to make decisions that impact their lives. In like
3: that, a God gross only sees way. male and female and heterosexual sex, and we have to go with God says.
0: And I'm always tying this directly to library worker agency because you can think that—that's absolutely your right to like have that in your head. That's like, you know the problem for us is that we collect materials for everybody in the community that includes people who believe that God, you know, hates gays, but it also includes everybody else. And there are a lot of gay people. I'm one of them, you know, and we also deserve to be in the library. We deserve our stories to be told. We deserve to be able to like live in a world that isn't, attacking us constantly i gotta say it's exhausting and have painful
2: you, have you developed a, by any either of you an idea of why these they're anchored so much by this these types of books i have a, you have a, a theory oh yeah okay. um so if you look
1: sort of continuously over the last like 10 years at um the anti-vax movement which is connected to the book banning movement if you look at the people who are against wearing masks, if you look at the book banning people, a lot of them are the same people. And it seems to be that there's this fundamental philosophical difference. There are some people in the world who do not want to be uncomfortable regardless of the impact on other people's lives. And there are some people who are willing to be uncomfortable to keep other people safe and happy and alive. So those of us who wore masks at the height of the pandemic, we made a decision, I'm autistic, that mask was terrible. I made a decision to keep my neighbors alive. People who refused made a decision that that discomfort was more important than keeping their neighbors alive. People who don't want their kids to come across a book about two gay penguins in the library, are making a decision that that discussion they have to have with their child, the discomfort of having to talk to them about their values, is more not having that is more important than the than someone else seeing themselves in a book and feeling valued as a human. And that's yeah. sort of, I think that's what, it's just a philosophical difference of how we experience discomfort and how we experience community.
3: You use the word comfort. This idea of comfort, and many parents would say, "You're making my child feel uncomfortable by making telling, saying these things, and you're putting in a different kind of slant on it. It's making the parent feel uncomfortable because they don't want to deal with it."
0: I often wonder if these people have met a child, right? Because I don't meet a lot of children who open a book that's that they're not ready to read and persist in reading it right like kids read books that they're ready to read they read books that are of interest to them and I also don't meet a lot of kids you know and I meet a lot of kids I don't meet a lot of kids who live in the you know who like hate in that way right I think it's fear also I think there's an intense amount of fear out there I talked to so many librarians I was in Alaska this week and the fear that I heard from librarians was so intense and the fear that I think and shame, really, that drives anger. I, so, anyway, I could unpack it for a long time, but
3: let, let me see if I can approach this from a little different mm-hmm. stance of what you've already said, and something, Emily, that you said at the at the Cooper Union, yeah. which got an applause. And it seems to me there's two questions here that that we're dealing with, and one is, and you've already addressed it: should a single group dictate what everyone thinks, what everyone reads? Is it that's one question, yeah. right? The other one, is, the other question is: does a child have the right to investigate their own world. And Emily, at the Cooper Union Panel on Censorship in America, you got an applause for saying that children have a right to to their own minds, that, quote, my child is sovereign to himself, children are people. And it's like, yes!
0: Children are people. And this is what I mean when I say, have these people ever met a child? Because the idea that I could control what my child thinks (laughs) is so foreign to me as a parent. So I'm a parent of a teenager, and... He is who he is, much to my regret, oftentimes, and my joy and my excitement and my fear and my shame and my anxiety, right? Like there's a lot wrapped up in how I feel about my kid, but none of the ways that I feel about my kid have a whole lot to do with who he is. So what children read is what they want to read, and the American Library Association has a long history of fighting for intellectual freedom and thinking about in ways complex and nuanced about how to extend that right and support that right for children and it's you know in this moment in time I think it is very appealing to be able to say you should have the right to control what your child reads and I I think there's a lot of danger in that because a you don't have that right and b even if you did you would be thoroughly unable to exercise it right we can't get we can't tell other people what to think and those dreams and fantasies of control like Trust me, I get it, but it, it you know, if you do the work to release yourself from those fantasies of control, you'll be a lot happier.
3: All right, I'm gonna be a devil's advocate yeah. here. I, my, my, my kid doesn't know anything. Okay. It's like I'm here to train my kid to be a human being. Absolutely. And I need to keep this kid safe. So if this kid's running across the street, I need to stop them. Mm-hmm. And if they if they come across a book that doesn't go along with the ideas of my family and what we believe. The kid doesn't have the right to do that because I am training this kid to be an American.
1: I would say that if you can't convince your child that the ideas that you believe in are true without restricting their access to other information, then you really need to work on your ideals because maybe that maybe that's the issue.
3: It's hard for you to be a devil's advocate on on that side because I mean, then that I could hear what that person would say. It's like, well, what I'm saying is true, and it's, it was God okay. given, and and this is this is the way it is, and, and yeah, and yeah. I mean, I and I don't of think that to way. Them.
0: <laughs> but like, you're you're a teacher, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm a teacher. You're like we're all teachers here, and we know that didactic education doesn't work. If I tell my child in stern language not to run across the street in front of a car, I'm likely to not be able to stop that behavior but we model behavior i think about this a lot because i you know i'm i'm a lesbian mom and my partner and i are both women and we just systematically leave the toilet seat down it's just like what we do in our household because that's who we are so we've got this boy and he does that also right and then he had some friends stay over the other night to like on their way to going skiing or something and and i noticed that the other kid was less adept at that and i was like oh it's not because we tell oscar right that's not how that happens is because we model behavior. So I would, I would urge people to think about what behavior you're modeling when you scream at other people and condemn them for who they are. And is that really the, the lesson that you want to be teaching your kid?
3: You're listening to Bar Crow Radio, and we're here at Geppard's Beer Culture Bar with librarians Emily Drabinsky and Lauren Comito. And we'll be right back.
2: Okay, let's look at another issue raised by the book banning mania. Uh, Many in this country are threatened by the drag story hour in public libraries. Um, First, can you help us out? Tell us what is a drag story hour, and when did this community reading start? and how prevalent is it? Oh, Drag Story Hour is so fun.
3: Um, We've never been, it's it, like, I wanna to go. go. You oh, we, have we have to go. You have to bring a kid, we
1: don't let people in. Oh,
3: well, we have kids. kids, we have grandkids. Oh, we have oh, grandkids. Amazing, yeah. bring the grandkids.
1: Yeah. Um, so, interestingly, my first experience in a bar in New York City when I moved here when I was 18 was a drag bar called Lips down, down in the village, in the, you know, in the West Village. Um, and I just remember feeling like more safe in that bar than any other bar I was ever in. Everybody was kind. They didn't, at the time, check my ID. This was 25 years ago. I'm sure the Statue of limitations is over. Um, but they were just nice and kind. They didn't let me get too drunk. They didn't let anybody bother me. It was a safe place. And I think like Drag Story Hour, and it was fun because people would be singing and hanging out and everyone would sing together. And that's kind of what Drag Story Hour is, but without the bar. Um, obviously, because it's a story at time. It's, you know, a fantastically dressed drag queen or king reading books about like, about, you know, being kind to each other.
3: Oh my God.
1: <laughs> Singing songs about being kind to each other. Wow. Um, and yeah, it's super fun. I've, I've had, I've been, I've done a couple drag makeup classes uh, where it's like, if you're gonna learn how to use eyeliner, uh, which took me till I was 35 and a trip to Sephora and an embarrassed ask of a makeup artist. Like, who better to learn from than a drag queen? They are so good at it.
3: And it goes the other way, too. It's like drag kings, too. Yeah. yeah, okay.
1: Yeah, they're just story times about being kind to each other that happen to be read by a drag queen. So this is going
2: on in New York City right now? We could find it's, it's you not might be being stopped? No. No, it's not being stopped. Um, that's good to know. And
1: you know, I mean, the Drag Story Hour NYC is a great organization that works really hard to keep everyone as safe as possible. They're lovely people, and I've always loved talking to them and working with them. They helped us with our safety guidebook um, that we made at Urban Librarians Unite because apparently, that's the thing we need to do now is make sort of a strategic safety planning guide workbook um, for holding a story time. Um, but yeah no they're, they're still happening
2: right lauren you uh you you work with uh urban librarians unite yeah right yeah and and has created a handbook safety guide can you tell us more about that what are some of the safety guides um, and why are they necessary so one of the things so
1: urban librarians unite is sort of a like we're a nonprofit with a board and i'm the director we have a couple staff now which is fantastic um, but it's really sort of built off supporting urban library workers. And the, when a need comes up in the sort of community of urban library workers, we try to see if we can meet it. Um, in this case, branch managers were saying that they wanted to hold a drag story hour, but they didn't feel like they were prepared to do so safely given the near, nearly violent protests. Um, I haven't seen one get. Really out of hand, physically yet, um, but, you but know, you, they you, feel like they could.
3: Well, can, can, you, can you be specific without naming where or what what, what oh, happens? Uh, what happens at a drag story hour when it's starting to get out of hand?
2: Have you um, ever experienced
1: that? Yes. <laughs> yes, I have. Yeah. Um, so I mean, it's in the news that there is usually uh, there's been bomb threats. Um, so generally, someone sweeps the building you know, to make sure that's going to be safe. And then um, usually if someone is going to show up and protest, there are several far-right groups in New York City that will show up and protest at drag story hours outside. Um, We generally assume that they're coming and prepare for that. Um, And there is a really fantastic group of people called the Defenders who show up with umbrellas and shield the kids so they don't have to see the people screaming at them.
2: Do, are, they allowed into, are the protesters allowed into the library?
1: No. No, okay, so they're outside. They're outside. Um, and, they're, and drag story hours generally require registration. You're not allowed to disrupt or violate the behavior policies of the library. Uh, how, do
3: you, how, do you, how do you prepare the parent and the child who's coming in for a good time? Um, I mean, do, do you let them know this could possibly become dangerous? And then if it does, how do you protect them? Uh
1: stand between them um like that's the plan so generally when you're planning an event like this you take stock of your exits and entrances you plan it to have it in a room with multiple exits you um, talk to the local precinct who comes out to separate people you have your security officers come everybody on the we have um, you have a branch staff meeting with everybody has their role somebody some people have to manage the desk and some people keep an eye on the door and some people keep an eye on the bathroom and the door to the program room and other people just sort of keep a vibe check of who's coming in and going out you know uh, to make sure that we sort of have an idea of what's going on it's in everybody out of the offices on the main floor moment and we work together to keep everyone safe
3: now, one one of the scary things that I read, and I once I read it, I went, "That makes sense," is you have to be careful about inviting the police to come and monitor things. Yeah. Why is that? You know. Is the answer obvious?
1: I'm not going to answer that question. Yeah. I okay. Think it's not I think I think there's actually something in the guide uh, that explains it really well. Okay. And it is online. And it is available online so
3: okay 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 one of the what, one of the um, things that maybe you can talk about is recommending inviting your city council member in
1: oh yeah <laughs> well they come they they're sometimes they're the ones funding it um at coming anyway our uh, the elected officials in new york city are generally fantastic about supporting diverse programming uh, that represents everybody you know in the community uh, there are some exceptions but you know, there's always that.
3: I, I do recommend people, if just just to get a sense of the the trouble this country is in, the fact that a drag story hour planning and, and safety guide needs to be created, and and was created, um, and you can get it online uh, under um, Urban Library, Urban Librarians Unite, right? Um, Okay, maybe you can answer this or not. Could
0: I say one thing about that? Yeah, 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 yeah. So you hear how much work it is and how hard it is to hold a drag queen story hour at your library. And I talk to a lot of people who say, well, then why do we keep having them? Maybe if we just didn't host the drag queen story hour, we wouldn't see these kinds of attacks on our institutions. And I think that's very dangerous and that we can't give an inch right now. And I just would urge people to think about what message that sends when we, when we, if we were to give in to that kind of yeah. concerted and attack,
1: particularly in New York State, where we have the New York State and New York City, where we have the New York City human rights laws, it would actually violate New York City and New York State human rights laws to not hold a drag story hour simply because of the gender expression of the people reading the stories. So, uh, besides just making it so that everyone in our community feels valued and feels seen and belongs in our building and in our library and with our neighbors. Like it's also, you know, there's laws, you know, you know we can't discriminate.
3: I had one other question, and this is kind of silly, but I think it's relevant to and you'll tell me if it is or not. Um, why is there no Proud Boy story hour or why is there no MAGA story hour?
0: Well, I don't think that the interest is
1: in, except there is, right? (sighs) What you say, you tell me what you think. There's the Brave Books story hour. Oh, right. Yes. And then there's um, some elected officials hold story hours in their offices so that they can keep the kids away from the terrible pedophile librarians. Um, And then there's, you know, story time with a cop, sometimes organized by Farther right politicians, there are those
2: oh, things so do exist. But I think
0: know. what they don't have is a lot of concerted, organized protest of their right to access a public institution right. and use it. That. And, right, and, like and that's yeah. And like you don't the see difference. any problem
3: with them having their own story arc.
0: Everybody should be able to use the public library, and everyone yeah. should be able to read the books that they want to read, and that includes everybody. everybody. We follow, the yeah, the behavior guidelines and the policies and procedures, like everybody, if we all abide, I was in Alaska this week and I was talking to a librarian at one of the branches of uh, the Anchorage Public Library and she was saying that, you know, the, the prerequisite to uh, maintaining community norms is to treat everyone like they are also a member of the community and that when we exclude people, We can't then expect them to follow the norms and so we have to understand that these elements that we might imagine are outside or not inside of our communities, that they are people inside of our communities and that we have to both recognize their humanity even if they don't recognize ours and even when it's difficult and then exactly what Lauren is saying, ensure that people follow the community guidelines if they want to be a part of the space.
2: So how is all this book banning activity affecting librarians? Their emotional and intellectual state.
3: And Lauren, you said you deal with the trauma of librarians, so we can talk about that. Um,
1: So in 2022, we released a study of uh, trauma and its impacts on urban public library workers. Um, And most of the survey for that was done in 2021, well before this book banning sort of wave really kicked off. So it wasn't directly about that. It also was never intended to be directly about COVID and dealing with masks, but it did end up being a bit about that as well. Um, libraries are a radically open public space, right? So any, anyone can walk in the doors and that does sometimes have impacts on staff wellbeing. Um, in this case, one of the things that, that people have been reaching out to me for is and our organization for is support around what they're dealing with um, in terms of the, you know, receiving these book bans. It's not like, you know, they're reading politely penned letters that say, "I, dear sir, I hope your family is in good health. Um, please." I want to share a concern. I would like to share a concern. Please remove this book from your collection forthwith. Thank you very sincerely you know, da-da-da, ex Like, that's not what's happening. What's happening is people are coming in and ca- calling us pedophiles, <laughs> telling us we need to remove these materials because we're exposing children to porn. There is no porn in libraries. There is not. It is not part of our collection criteria, unless it's like an academic library where maybe they collect something on purpose for a specific department. Like, it's not a thing. So the harassment, the stalking, the being yelled at, the, the being driven out of your church like the being harassed at the grocery store that like has a deep impact it's not the banning it's the stalking the harassment the nastiness the sort of lack of civic civility that's really impacting library workers right now
2: do you think or maybe you know some authors whose books have been banned do you have they talked about how it's affected them
0: Yeah, you should get some of them on your show. I was just at an event with George M. Johnson who wrote All Boys Aren't Blue, just a really uh, compelling memoir and narrative about being black and queer. Um, And listening to George talk about how just the impact as a writer and as a thinker and as an activist and as an artist, but also the way that they felt called to this political moment. So I think that for a lot of us, like for me, like I didn't think I would take offices as, as president of the American Library Association as an openly gay president of the American Library Association in 2024. I figured that would not be an issue, right? Like who could care about that? Um, but it has turned out to be a massive it- issue. Um, and I think for a lot of authors, you're writing the book for the people that you're writing the book for yourself in many ways, the book that you could have used when you were a youth, and then to just have this kind of public attack, it's both personally, I think, really painful, but also in a, for a lot of these authors, quite activating. You know, and George is great and beautiful on this.
2: The presence of professionally trained librarians is connected to improved literary rates in a community. Uh, what is the impact of book banning on a community's literary rates? I don't know that there's data on that.
0: I don't think we have data on the impact on literacy rates, but we do, you know, if everything, all the data shows us, especially school librarians, have a significant impact on student learning outcomes and student literacy. And so you've got, like, a couple of different problems there. One, it takes a lot of work, right, to manage... 500 complaints that have been issued by someone in who maybe doesn't even have a student in the school. So all of the work that the librarians could have been doing to develop programming, collection development, all of those things are they can't do that while they're engaged in that kind of a fight. And then, you know, we talk a lot about book banning, that's the topic here, but We also have to be clear that there are multiple ways to ban books. And one of the ways that you can ban books, I think, is by not sufficiently staffing a library so that you have people there who can connect a kid to a book. So I have a teenager, if you have a teenager, you know that like trying to get them to read a book can be sometimes a challenge, unless you have like a kid who's a reader. But you know who's really, really skilled at talking with a student and figuring out what, the, the, what book might appeal to them and connecting with them on a human level to add reading to their lives? Like a school librarian. And so here in New York City where we have uh, regulation from the state that schools of a certain size must have a, a school library staffed by a certified school librarian. We still have just woefully small numbers that, when I hear them, sort of you know, you don't like it. Every, it's an equity issue, right? Like every child in every zip code should have access to a certified school librarian. When they don't, that's another way of, of eliminating
1: access to knowledge, imagination. Yeah, and inquiry. then people want to complain that kids only Google things or use Wikipedia, but you've just taken away the main resource that they would use to learn how to do anything else.
2: Parents of, of, of children who um, are not really acclimated to reading, and not really into it, and they want to try to engage them, a lot of times as a teacher, I would get that question. And while I, of course, as a teacher, know a lot about some, you know, books that I've used before and I've I've discovered, I have nowhere near the knowledge that a librarian would have. And so it just, I don't know why it didn't occur to me. Of course. That is so valuable. We have a set of skills.
0: And just as you wouldn't cut your own hair, if you do, it's a mistake, right? And just as, yeah, I wouldn't plumb my own house. I wouldn't try to do all kinds of things that I don't have expertise in. When we have people who don't have expertise in libraries and who really don't know the field, making decisions about the field, I think that's really dangerous. And I think the undercutting of librarian agency and authority to nimbly respond to circumstances they see in their libraries and their schools, I mean public educators know this well what happens when you're not given the space to nimbly respond to the situation in front of you like it both is a, a big morale hit and it means that students don't learn so if we really cared about it we would we would have lots of school librarians
3: yay librarians yay. I, we have one more question and this is kind of going back about a thousand miles from, from, from book banning but I think it all relates recently Elmo of Sesame Street Uh, Asked on X, formerly Twitter, how is everybody doing? (laughs) And he received 180 million views. I don't know if you heard about this. Uh, One poet responded, Hanif Abu Abudarakib. He, He wrote, Elmo, each day the abyss we stare into grows. A unique horror. Our inevitable doom, which once accelerated in years or months, now accelerates in hours, even minutes. However, I did have a good grapefruit earlier. Thank you for asking. (laughs) I love that. Is Abu Dharakib's inevitable doom in part a result of totally divided nation that you all are facing as librarians, unable to move forward due to this opposing way of viewing? I know we've talked about this, but any last statements on that?
1: I, I don't think that we're actually that far apart. I think that our reactions to crisis and our reactions to, you know, our comfort or challenges to our ideals or beliefs are different but I still fundamentally believe in the humanity of other people and that humanity will eventually figure its stuff out and be better because otherwise I should just go home and crawl under my bed. Um, I was in a school library in Alaska this week
0: And we walked in, it was me and a couple of other Alaska librarians, and the librarian was telling a story to a group of young children, kindergartners, I think. And she said, these adults are here, so I'm going to go and talk to these adults for a few minutes. What do you think you could do while I do that? And a little girl in the group chirped in that little four-year-old chirp sound and said, read a book! And it was the cutest thing, and it happens 100,000 times a day in every single library, and like, like so many times a day, and that's what's really happening in the library. And so we are talking a lot about attempts to censor library materials, but I don't want us to lose sight of the wonder and joy that happens in libraries every day, that this, while this devastating story is real, traveling around the country and the world looking in libraries, everyone I go into has something exceptional and amazing and about building community with other people and so we feed, there are forces I think that feed on our division and feed on fear and profit from it and it's very important I think for us to make sure that we are also telling the stories of young children who want to read a book and that's mostly what we're dealing with every day.
1: Yeah, we had one after uh, when we first reopened after the covid shutdown and let people into the building into the building instead of just picking up holds this seven-year-old walked in saw that the barriers were gone and said this is the best day of my life i'm like well you're seven so you'll have hopefully a better one but yay and let me say one other thing
0: about my trip to alaska So it was organized by pam Verfai, who is a uh, high school librarian at valdez alaska and uh, I was sitting next to her at some event and we just got to talking and we just really hit it off. And so she set up this trip for me to Alaska and I got to see so many school, public and academic librarians, libraries and talk to so many librarians. And it was amazing. And so I spent a couple of days driving around in an SUV with Pam and Pam and I don't agree on a bunch of stuff. Like she is a gun owner. She believes in a strong military. She believes in you know, things that I, as a, on a personal level, maybe don't agree with, but guess what? We agree about 90% of the things. Because what we're talking about here is, is America divided over the question that people should have a right to be who they are, that children should learn to read and learn to love reading, that everyone should have access to the tools of imagination? Like, we don't disagree about that. And survey after survey demonstrates that, right? That, and with the rise in book banning, I think you also see a rise in the number of people who think, well, that's a bunch of baloney, like the library's amazing. And you know, what's heartening for me is that with all of this negative attention being paid to librarians and libraries right now by some parts of the media and some parts of the political establishment, when you ask me the question at the beginning of this, is a public library relevant anymore? We've got so many people saying we're the most dangerous institution on the planet that it gives an opening and an opportunity to share what we do and who we are, and trying to make sure that everybody knows that if you want a place to look for hope in a divided America, you will find it at your local library.
3: Wow. That wow. was a great response. Great. great. Thank you. Lauren Camido. You want me to follow that? Yeah, no, 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 no. no, no. <laughs> I'm just going to say thank you to Lauren Camido of Urban Librarians Unite and Emily Drabinsky head of American Library Association for joining us. We are honored, and th- we will do our best to get that message out. Thank you Thanks. so much, we right. appreciate it. Right, thank you.
2: I wonder, when a Moms for Liberty successfully bans a book that is investigating the struggles of a transgender person, for instance, what happens to that story? that idea. Does it disappear? Well, of course, the idea does not disappear. But maybe it gets hidden for a while. But the feelings continue and grow. The idea remains. And for the book banner, this must be a continuing thorn in their psyche forever. No wonder the anger.
3: And a great big thanks to Tim Goplerud for lending us his composition of It Takes Two, performed by Oboe Bass.